Osiris. Somebody would come up and say, so you have a new record, right? And they'd lean over with the microphone and you could say yes. And then they pull the microphone right back. So that's an area where I saw, look, I can make a change. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Darling, since we met, I don't regret one single step we've made. We're taking it slow and we both know that's the way to make love stay. Hey everybody, welcome to Salute the Songbird. I'm your host Maggie Rose and I'm thrilled to have you back with us this week because I'm speaking to one of my favorite people, not only in the music industry, but just in general. She always makes me feel so welcome and very much like family whenever I set foot at the Grand Ole Opry. And I'm speaking, of course, of Jeannie Seely, one of the most accomplished, influential women in music. She's a member of the Grand Ole Opry herself, is a Grammy-winning artist, and an incredible, prolific songwriter. In August of 2020, she released an album called An American Classic, where she re-recorded some of her favorite songs that she's released over the years, and recorded songs that she's loved that were written by friends who she's accumulated over the years. One song from that album was written with her best friend Dottie West after her passing. We talk about what it was like to be a woman in the music industry in the 60s, when she got her start in Los Angeles and later in Nashville. And she co-wrote one of my favorite songs, What Love Is, with Randy Newman, who famously doesn't collaborate very often. It was first recorded by Irma Thomas. It's a stellar tune. So one of Jeannie's accomplishments is being one of Randy's collaborators that you can list on one hand. Her recording of Don't Touch Me not only topped the country music charts, but also earned her a Grammy Award for the best country vocal performance by a female. It's ranked at number 97 in the book of country music's 500 greatest singles published by the Country Music Foundation. And it's also included in the stories behind country music's all-time greatest 100 songs. She earned the nickname Miss Country Soul earlier in her career due to her deeply moving, soulful voice, and I couldn't agree more. So let's talk to Miss Country Soul herself. Enjoy this wonderful conversation with the soulful, savvy Jeannie Seely. So far, so good. My first car was an MGA Roadster. I buried it in a snowdrift on Easter Sunday morning and That was when I made my decision. It's like, I want to live somewhere else where this doesn't happen. So I started kind of thinking what I wanted to do. And I'd seen Southern California on TV. looked pretty cool to me. And then when this girl, Marcia Davis, moved back home, she come roaring in in a 1960 Austin Healy. So we became friends immediately. And then two of my cousins went with us. So there were two in each car to go out there. Get this. I mean, it was such a different time. That was 1961. And in those sports cars, there's no place to carry much with you. So it was (laughs) jeans and sweatshirts and T-shirts. So we shipped all our stuff in these boxes 
to General Delivery, Los Angeles, California, hold for arrival. Can you believe doing that today? Absolutely not. (laughs) Insane. Of course, you know, we had no idea. I remember when we went to pick up those boxes and we got downtown L.A. and I'm like, whoa, I couldn't believe here was a box with my name on it in that huge city even back then. So, you know, God has had a whole group of angels following me. That's all I can say. (laughs) Well, you do that for so many people, but you got to LA, you went there on a whim. It was climate motivated, not musically motivated. And you end up at Imperial Records as a secretary. One of the first songs that you pen is one of my favorite songs called Anyone Who Knows What Love Is Will Understand, that Irma Thomas cut. And you co-wrote it with Randy Newman, who's notoriously known for not collaborating with a lot of people. But yeah. I think you pretty much had the idea and you you asked him for consultation yeah. on chord progressions and things like that. And this song is an R&B hit which is now something that has been covered so many times. It's on one of my favorite shows, Black Mirror on Netflix. And I think it's featured in every episode, which is wildly exciting. Did you feel out of your depths when that happened? And did it happen as quickly as I perceive it to have happened? Or did you feel like you were kind of treading water for a while in your first years in Los Angeles? Yeah, I was... My career up until then had been in banking. So I, you know, when I first went to L.A., I got a job at Union Bank in Beverly Hills. But that's when I started meeting people who were singing and writing songs. And I saw an ad for a secretary in Liberty Records. So I thought this is my opportunity to learn how to do this, learn this business I love so much. Part of my job there was working in the metric music publishing end. That's where I met Randy. He was just a new artist, writer. So I was trying to write this song. I had a good bit of it written, but I couldn't play what I was hearing. I'm not a musician at all. So I thought, well, I, I didn't disagree, have a, but you know. <laughs> So I thought, well, I've done all I can do on the guitar. So I stayed after work to use the piano there at the office to see if I could work it out. And I wasn't doing any better at that. I looked up and Randy came down the hall and I just hollered at him. I said, Randy, will you come in here and help me find I'm hearing chords and I don't know how to play it. So he came in, of course, played it. So anyway, the song got split. So that's why Randy still can maintain he doesn't co-write with other people. (laughs) I just railroaded him in to come help me, and he did, and then he went on about his business. But I think anyone would be happy to claim that they were a part of that song, but it sounds like you were generously cutting him in on that. Well, you know, I, I still don't worry about that. It becomes more and more important to me, the camaraderie when you're writing with people. And they said, well, how many writers were on that? And doesn't that cut in? There's not a lot of money in songwriting anyway anymore unless we get some laws changed. But the camaraderie and anything is 
more fun and more enjoyable to me if it's shared. And so, yeah, it's been great. I did get to talk to Randy not long ago when this came out with the Black Mirror and all. It's like he said, I was sitting there one night hearing something on television. He said it sounded remotely familiar to me. So he was thrilled about it. What a great guy. But yeah, that song has taken on a life of its own. And I'm so proud of it. I am trying to think in my mind that idea because somebody said where did you get the idea i said well this is probably not what you pictured but in my mind it seems like it was a pantyhose ad a magazine ad that said anyone who knows what comfort is would understand and i'm like oh no anyone who knows what love is would understand everybody thinks i'm crazy but if you know what love is The origin of a song is always a mystery, and I think it comes from a different spot every time. But Mm -hmm. I think it's evident when you talk about songwriting being a vehicle for camaraderie and relationships in your life, because there are so many people who believed in you early on. Your relationship with Dottie West is just absolutely remarkable in her cutting your music early on, in her being instrumental to your move to Nashville. Can you talk about Dottie West in particular? Because I know that your single right now is something that was written by Steve Warner and Bobby Tomberlin and posthumously Dottie West a little bit. Is that amazing? If you could call it that. I didn't start this journey with that song. My adopted little brother, I call him my friend Ron Harmon, had some of Dottie's memorabilia and he found where she had started writing this song in a journal. And it resonated so much with Ron, the whole feeling, I guess, that he got from it. And he took it to Bobby Tomberlin, who called Steve Warner in because Steve had worked with Dottie. And it was very important to those guys to finish this song the way they thought Dottie would. And I really think they did. I think they were channeling her somehow. But yeah, they brought it to me. And I can't even imagine how upset I'd have been if I hadn't have gotten this song. It does mean so much to me. It feels like I got to finish something else for Dottie. You know, our story goes back our friendship beyond this, but in 77, when I had a bad car accident, Dottie was there in the hospital. And I always appreciated that so much. And then, of course, in her accident, I wasn't able to do a thing. I sat there in that waiting room and waited. It was all I could do. And it's always been so painful that I couldn't give back what she gave to me. So this song is part of that healing for me as well. And I feel on this like I did the night I got to sing Here Comes My Baby at the medallion ceremony when she was inducted into the Hall of Fame. 
I was standing backstage looking out at that room. You talk about a tough room to work. All Hall of Fame members, powerhouse producers, executives. And I felt a little weak in the knees. And then I thought, Jeannie, this isn't about you at all. This is Dottie's night. And so all of a sudden, just this peaceful calm came over me. And I walked out with just complete joy that I could finish a journey that Dottie would have made had she lived. She would have made it into the Hall of Fame on her own, and that night would have been hers. So that's all I could think of. And when I was recording this song, I had that same feeling. It's like, okay, Dottie, here's one more thing. I'm going to finish it for you. When Dottie told you to move to Nashville, she famously said that Nashville is where you learn. Right. And I couldn't agree with that sentiment more. I do feel <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's a baptism by fire kind of place where you move <laughs> there and everyone is either a really great songwriter or great guitar player. And you kind of came in with a pretty good group of people around you to support you. But how do you feel that the scene in Nashville at that time was not catering to young women. And do you think that some of those things have been slow to change? All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I mean, you talked about the host opportunities being right. few and far between at the Opry. I heard a really great interview where you were talking about how you weren't trying to knock the boys. It wasn't a good old boys club because they were intentionally icing out the women. It's just how inherently the town was set up. They would yeah. go on tour or they'd share a hotel room or they'd be at the right. bar and these mm. opportunities would just arise. And that the way you got into those rooms is by you and Dottie inviting everyone over for a home cooked yeah. meal. That was and just Dottie's having to work doing. your way around. <laughs> I was very lucky to have her as a friend who loved to cook also. And uh, so and luckily they like help. to eat. So, yeah, that's another reason. There's another female organization that I admire so much, too. And that's the group Chicks with Hits, because, you know, here again, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, but. It was difficult for women to even get in and see these producers because they always thought there was an ulterior motive, you know, and you got blamed for that. So trying to guard your reputation during this time was difficult, too. So anyway, this group of women said, OK, they can't pick on all of us, so they pooled their time and they'd make appointments and two or three of them go at a time to pitch their songs. And I just thought that was a wonderful thing. I thought, boy, I wish Dottie and I would have thought of that. And there were obstacles like that, that reputation wise kept you from entering some of those doors. 
much different than it is now. I know that you were successful at co-writing with a lot of already established artists, but there was also people who were well-intentioned who would avoid writing with you because they wanted you to get the notoriety for yourself. They didn't want to have it be perceived as if you were only getting these cuts because by proxy with whomever that might be. That was one of the really good things that Hank Cochran did because I was feeling like he didn't think that I could write well enough to write with him. He'd be co-writing with all these other people. I'm like, why won't you co-write with me? And he said, because until you have some hits on your own, nobody will take you serious. They will think that you maybe had an idea, but that I wrote it. And he said, this is the only way they will accept you and respect you on your own. So that was a great gift from Hank. At the time, I'm sure you didn't think it was a gift, though. No, I didn't. (laughs) And also your own label discouraging you from cutting your own songs when you were getting success simultaneously with other artists. You had to not get one, not two, not three, but several cuts for them to finally say, oh, clearly she's onto something and nothing's more convincing than when it comes from the writer. The sad thing is, and it's just startling to realize, and you probably don't even realize this either. I only recorded for a major label for seven years in my entire career from 67 to 73. Wasn't your recent release with Curb as well? Yeah, that's the first one since 73. And I think label is becoming less important, but it was certainly important in those years. In those years it was, and that's the reason I'm here, because thank goodness with all the technology we have now, we can do our own thing as we were talking earlier. You don't have somebody rigidly saying this particular music, this particular sound, we can do what we want. We're pretty lucky. That's my answer to a lot of the people, especially in the my generation or even the one after me that complain, you know, well, I'm not hearing on the radio what what I like. And I look at them and say, you know, we live in the greatest era there is. You can hear anything you want. You're in the driver's seat today. Yeah, that's right. You're not hearing it, honey. It's your fault. Not anybody Mm -hmm. else's. You just got to look for it. Absolutely. I think that that's one of the reasons that genre is becoming less important as well is because the consumer is able to kind of pick and Mm -hmm. choose what they're listening to. And that's why I think the Opry is a bit of a physical representation of that. It's like Mm -hmm. you can have you and me on the same evening and and Jimmy Allen and it makes sense. And I always like it when it's you and me, by the way. I love it when it's you and me. That's my favorite. I'll drink to that, Maggie. (laughs) Cheers to you, Jeannie. I have to, one little anecdote that I always love is uh, you and I enjoy expressing ourselves with our aesthetic as well. 
I think you always look fabulous. Anyone listening right now, I can attest to that. Jeannie looks absolutely beautiful. But you're like, you're a little hussy just like me. (laughs) It's Uh because we wear what a contemporary woman would want to wear. And I think just like our outfits, we don't conform to what people's idea of what you wear on this stage or that stage or the Grand Ole Opry might be. And our music reflects that as well. Well, don't you think, too, that I like that you say we're we dress like every other American woman. I don't always feel like wearing the same thing. Some nights I feel like wearing pants and other nights I don't. Some nights I feel like wearing a hat. Mm -hmm. Some nights I wear the Grand Ole Opry sweatshirt. It's like. (laughs) And you still look dang good in it. Earrings (laughs) make a big deal. Earrings are are important. <laughs> it's also the person wearing it and how they wear it. But I think being fluid in that way and, you know, you mentioned Carly Pierce because I know that you guys are close, but mm-hmm. there is something really empowering about seeing just more of an individual aesthetic on stage. And I think that that will just influence further the music when you can see someone that looks like you and dresses like you on stage. And the question I'm getting at is how styles are diversifying in country music in particular. I think that there's an emphasis on diversity in general that people are all getting behind and trying to see more of. And the Opry seems to be really making a conscious effort to do that. Do you agree? I do. Well, the Opry has always reinvented itself as it went along, as we do as artists. Times change and you must change with them or it's gone. You look at anything that didn't change with time and their history now. So you've got to stay relevant to what's going on. And you mentioned fashion. You know, there was a time where it's like, Oh, well, no, a pant leg has to be this. It has to be flared or it's out. You can't Mm -hmm. have straight leg. You can't have, there's no hard set rule in fashion anymore either. Everything is in. You can open a catalog and you get any style you want. Plus the other thing, like you say, as an individual, I also look at, Just because you look good in something, that doesn't mean I'm going to look good in it. I think dressing well means to know what works for you. And people appreciate that. Just like people don't care if you make a mistake. One of the things I always say is do not get upset if you make a mistake or whatever, because if you get upset, you're going to make the whole audience upset. Mm-hmm. And they don't care. That means you're real. Just roll with it. Laugh about it and go on. Just keep going. It doesn't matter. That's what I love about your show on Willie's Roadhouse as well. Is <laughs> it just doesn't seem like your conventional radio show. I feel like you're just calling up your buddies and yeah. their quick interviews. And it shows your intimacy with all these amazing artists that you call. And you know, then you play some really great music. Your playlists are are cool. You're talking about just your life and you being accessible and the celiasms that everyone loves. 
that you are, are real. Yeah, they are. How uh, did you get that gig with Willie's Roadhouse? What's so funny is I never even thought about doing that, but I had been asked to roast Charlie Monk for a fundraiser okay. for Music Health Alliance, which I love Tatum Hawk and all of them over there. They do such great work. And that's one of the causes that you're oh, passionate about that helps musicians absolutely. get insurance, things we really yeah. don't know how to do. <laughs> um, well, I'll teach you. <laughs> but they asked me to roast Charlie Monk and I'm like, OK, I can do this. Well, Charlie actually handed me this whole thing because he's so funny. Well, then when I got up there, as I was firing all these shots at Charlie, you know him, he isn't going to be quiet. So he was over there and he would fire something back. And every time he did, I shot him down again. So it was so funny. Later, I found out that all the powers to be with Sirius XM radio were there. And they said they were thinking about adding another female presence to the roadhouse. And when they said, if she can think that quick on her feet, then she's who we need on there. So that's, they just called me. You have me in me. stitches sometimes when you're just riffing on stage at the Opry. When we went to dinner <laughs> not too long ago, I was just laughing. You're sharing stories about being on the road and going to Branson and stopping at all these different spots. One of your tour mates, he had his breakfast spot, his lunch spot, his yeah. dinner spot. And Grand Ole Opry star Johnny Russell, yeah. heavy set, used to say, can everybody here see me all right? <laughs> but I think you're a wordsmith and that goes beyond your songwriting. It's how quick you are and well, did you hear what happened to me recently, Maggie? When no, I, tell When it. I introduced the wrong song at the Opry. Of course, we're <laughs> doing the three songs in a row now. And so I did my first two songs. Everything was fine. And then I started into the introduction about the Dottie West song that she started. Did this whole introduction of it, told the whole story. Then there's silence. And I look back and the band said, you're supposed to be singing Teach Me Tonight. And I said, <laughs> I turned to the audience. I said, whoops. <laughs> I said, I just introduced the wrong song. I said, I'll get to that. But I then I just said, if y'all want to hear that song that I just introduced to you, when you leave here tonight, go to Spotify. It's up there. You can hear us. You've accomplished so much, yet I think that you are very much an influencer on what's going on in country music right now and specifically what's going on at the Opry. And you help artists like myself and Carly Pierce and so many others to evolve what the scope of what's happening at the Opry is. Like you are a mover and shaker, even though your pedigree is so long and, <laughs> and accomplished. Well, somewhere along the way, I realized that this industry has given so much to me and it's my turn to give back. And kind of my hobby is all of 
you young artists come up, especially all the young females. I like the guys too, but you girls are very special to me. And it just absolutely thrills me to see how some of you are just pushing the limits. I don't know how any other way to say it because you have to. You, somebody said, how did you negotiate the old boy network and the, you know, overshadowing? And I just said, I kind of let them know in the nicest way that I could. I'm here to stay. And I think that's what I'm seeing with the young women today. We have to work harder. I wish that things would have changed so much by now. And it shocks me that it hasn't. I wonder if you were conscious at the time as you were becoming successful as an artist that you were moving forward for all the women that were going to come after you, the game and how women would be perceived in the country music landscape. Or was that just something that you realized was manifested after? Well, I think somewhere along the way, I realized that we have to work together to make that happen. The sisterhood at the Opry and my generation was pretty strong. And that's why I love seeing the sisterhood and your generation too, and how you're supporting each other. You know, people might look at us as though we're all in competition. And in one sense, we are. But overall, there's no stronger support system than other people who understand what your challenges are, what your dreams are, what it takes to get there. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, y'all are doing it right. There were some points along the way that I saw things where I saw I could make a difference, kicking on the doors to make it acceptable for women to host at the Grand Old Opry. We were never even given a microphone, you know. Yeah. It would be like somebody would come up and say, so you have a new record, right? And they'd lean over with the microphone and you could say yes. And then they'd pull the microphone right back. So, yeah, that's an area where I saw, look, I can maybe make a change here that will make a change from now on. And I'm very proud of that hard won battle. <laughs> Well, you totally won that battle and you continue to. And I think it's funny to watch some videos of you at the Opry where you're performing songs like Don't Touch Me. And even then you had that Jeannie Seely wit. She's pretty and she's got hit records. And I think she sings just great. Jeannie, what are you going to do for the folks? Don't touch me, Jerry. Oh, Jeannie, you don't think that I... No, no, I just mean that's the title of the song, Jerry. Oh, that's what I thought. <laughs> Your hand is like a torch each time you touch me. And even though you were inducted at the Opry and became a member in the late 60s, it wasn't until 81 that you yourself were given the role as a host and wasn't that also because of a an accident? Del yeah. Reeves was caught in a snowstorm <laughs> yeah. or something yeah, like that? Yeah, that was an act of God. It took an act of God <laughs> to do it. 
And that was one brief time that didn't open the door. You would think that it did. But yeah, I mean, they didn't even give me any warning. And like on the way to the stage, this, by the way, you're hosting. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Why? And they said, because you're the only Opry artist in the building. So I'm like, whoa, let me think here. Okay, you do your back then they were 15 minute segments. So it's like, okay, you do your first song, then you throw it to commercial and then you put your guest on. I'm like, so who is my guest if nobody's here? And Debbie Logue, who who was the one in charge, and she said, does anybody in your band want to sing on the Grand Ole Opry? So, yeah, that was 81. But then it went right back to the same thing. So it wasn't until in the 90s. Every Opry manager that would come on, I would make my appointment and go in the office and talk to them. And they would always tell me it was tradition at the Opry. And that's just the way we do it in country music. It wasn't until Bob Whitaker took over that Bob listened to me. And I think the main reason, because Bob managed Opryland Park and oversaw all those production shows out there. So he was looking at me like, what? You don't have a microphone? Everybody in those shows had a speaking part and a singing part. So he said, no, that's wrong. Then he said, "Okay, I'm going to throw you out there, Celie, and you better be able to do it or you and I are both in trouble. Well, I think you're as equipped as a speaker as you are a performer. And you have Sundays with Celie on Willie's Roadhouse, which I love for your candor. And I've had the privilege (laughs) of being on the Opryville maybe 60 plus times where you've been either a host or a performer. And Mm. you're so competent as someone who can think on their feet. And I think that your role in influencing the evolution of the Grand Ole Opry is one of the reasons that it will continue to be an institution that will sustain. And it's the fact that people like you are making it such a resilient institution in that way. Because for me, I don't necessarily feel that I'm making music to cater to country radio anymore, but I'm certainly making music to still be invited to the Opry because I think that they deem important things about community and music and connection with the fans that you really can't find anywhere else. But it does take a willingness to change in people like you who are part of the Grand Ole Opry to move it in that direction. And it's really encouraging. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because Basically, I don't know what kind of music you're making. You're making good music. And, you know, we have a very diverse audience. The Grand Ole Opry reaches people that aren't particularly, as we call it, died in the wool country music fans. The Opry is so unique. There's nothing like it. It's not your ordinary show. It's not your ordinary concert venue. It is just an entity all of its own. And when people discover the Grand Old Opry, they like to stay with it. So I appreciate what you're saying. And the Opry has to change. And I think there's always been 
a fight against it whenever anything changes at the Opry. And I think it's because it is so revered that any change people worry that's going to ruin the Opry. But I mean, I heard it when my records had violins instead of fiddle and we had drums and we had electric guitar. So it's always been changing and it must change. And I love seeing people like you that come in and you see that it's not just one particular kind of music or one particular sound. And you're bringing it all to the stage. You go out and entertain. And that's what people want. I think that's what also makes it special is it's one of the few places where you can find people who are up and coming, who are firmly established, who mm-hmm. are parts of the different subgenres of the music coming out of Nashville. Really, it's not just country. It's the community and the family that you can only find when you go there. And my parents even know this, that when I'm talking about those specific individuals, you are among that group. You always make sure to like come say hi when we get there. And you and Jean are you know, your family to me. Yeah. And I feel well, that in, in a town where there's so much talent and mm. there's many opportunities to be unsure of yourself, that's a place where I can come and feel at home. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jeannie Seeley, whom I absolutely just love. I mean, what's not to love? She's so delightful. But typically, I'm able to do these little check-ins with you every episode, either right after the conversation has taken place, sometimes even before. And that wasn't the case with this week's episode, because my expectation going into this conversation was that it would be full of Jeannie sharing anecdotes about you know, wow, look how far we've come from when I began my career to now. Look at us. And that's not what I was met with. In fact, I think Jeannie is not without criticism of the pace at which we've evolved, especially in Nashville and our music industry. And her activism goes on. She has done so much for all of us. And she continues to do so with joy and positivity because she's effective at it. But Imagine what we missed out on by not giving her the microphone, for example, as a host of the Grand Ole Opry when she was already fully capable of doing an incredible job. What greatness did we miss out on? What fun moments with her comedic genius did we not get to witness? Who could she have introduced us to on that stage that we should have known about earlier? And yes, she eventually got the mic because it was undeniable that it belonged to her But is there anyone in your life that maybe we should hand the mic over to before it's just absolutely black and white that it belongs to them? Are we making room for people? Are we challenging the status quo? I'm so glad that Jeannie made it damn certain that that mic was hers. Later on in your career, you became a producer of records and you continue to be a producer of records. Was that a controversial thing to assume that title as a woman in the industry at that point in time with little Jimmy Dickens and and the record that you produced? 
Dickens is the one who asked me to do that. That wasn't something I set out to do. I had pitched him this song, She Always Got What She Wanted, and he loved the song, said he was going to record it. And then a few weeks later, he came back and he said, I want you to produce this whole album for me. At the time, Dickens was 60 and I was 40. And about two sessions into it, we're sitting there on a break when I said, why did you ask me to do this? And he said, oh, didn't you want to? I said, yeah, I'm loving it. But this is not exactly the norm to ask somebody this much younger than you, somebody with no credits of doing this and a female yet. He said, well, I was sitting there listening to She Always Got What She Wanted. Lord, I wish that she wanted me. And he said, I thought anybody who can write a song like that and get that feeling across. He said, I want you to help me get that feeling on the whole album as much as possible. When we were recording it, I knew that it was all there. But when it came to mixing, I had no experience there. And I knew that you can lose it. You can lose the whole thing in the mix. In a second, right. So order of all our disagreements when I had to leave the show earlier than he wanted me to, we became very close friends and he always said, anytime I can do anything for you, let me know. So I called Porter and I told him about the project and I said, but I know it's on these tapes, but I don't know how to mix well enough. I'm afraid and I don't want to lose this for Dickens. I said, will you help me mix it? So he said, I'll be glad to. So Porter came in and helped me do that. He did not do it for me. He helped me do it. And I learned so much from him. The album comes out and the producer credits went to Porter Wagner. I was devastated. And I called Dickens and he said, that wasn't me. You need to talk to Richard Davis about that. Mm. So I called Richard who was Dickens' manager. And, you know, it gets me even now. And I'm like, why? You know better. Why did you do this? And he said, we just felt like the album would have a stronger chance if Porter produced it. Right. Yeah. And it's like... It's pretty shitty. I guess I frame that question in such a strange way because for me it's difficult when I'm researching your amazing career to see how there are all these wonderful men in your life who believed in you and helped you and supported you. But there always seems to be a little caveat in in giving yeah. you the full glory yeah. that I think you deserve. And I feel like it's just worth mentioning. It bears mentioning that 
know, Porter, yes, he gave you an opportunity when you moved to Nashville, but that should have been rectified. And mm. there's a few things like that when I talk to especially women who had a musical career at that time is just a begrudging generosity from yeah. some of these men. Yeah. And you have handled all of that with such grace. And we all love Porter Wagner and everything. But, but Porter, you know, it's like, did, it's like yeah. the John Lennon not giving Yoko Ono writing credit <laughs> on Imagine until the 80s. And I do want to clarify, it wasn't Porter who did that. Porter did help me. He told me, he said, I'm sorry that happened. He didn't know anything about it either. That responsibility lies totally on Richard Davis's shoulders. And Richard is still with us and he knows. But I, I know what you're saying. There always was a but. The whole reason I did this podcast was because I felt cut off from my tribe, the women who make music with me in any genre at any level of establishment you are always someone who has been important to me and not seeing you at the opry was tough but you kept making yeah. noise and i kept making noise and i think that's just what you have to do if it's in your blood it's yeah. what you do you connect with your audience and they're my a and r team essentially that's how i know what's working and <laughs> I feel That's like right. you probably depend upon that as well, but we also depend on each other and that camaraderie is not going unnoticed. You can't ignore it. And I think that that's something that's been really inspiring to see, not just in Nashville, but across the industry is women specifically joining arms to make sure that we're being heard and that we're getting the resources we need for this to really become a meritocracy. Because well, it hasn't always felt that way. And the women out there listening, we're talking about our fans, our listeners. They feel the same way. They feel like we're saying what they want to say. We're a voice for them. And their world is not that much different than ours. They're facing the same situations in their workplace and their social areas as well. So we're a voice for them. You know, you have so many songs that you've written that you're continuing to write, your Grammy Awards, your Opry statue, which I know you kindly lend to the production of Nashville many times whenever they have yeah. one of their characters get inducted. Yeah, I told Pete Fisher, you know, and he said, can we borrow it, you know, for this scene? I'm like, no, no. And he said, yeah, I'll bring it right back. And I'm like, Pete, you can't borrow it. I will rent it to you. By the way, they still owe me <laughs> big time. I want to say something to you too, Maggie, because not only have I fought um, the gender discrimination, I'm looking at age discrimination now, and that's a very real issue as well. And this is not a complaint. It's a total compliment to you that you and several of my young friends, I love that you don't age doesn't seem to be an issue with you when we are all together. And I thank you for that. It's absolutely not only is it not an issue, but I think it's a point of respect for me. And this isn't a, oh, let's talk about all the things that happened in Jeannie Seeley's early career. This is what is Jeannie doing right now. This is which now is so yeah. much. And, mm -hmm. uh, you are 
prolific and you're letting all of us uh, benefit from the struggles that you've gone through. And, you know, Sonny Sweeney and I have sung your praises and (laughs) Elizabeth Cook and I Ah. love you. And there's a class of women that see what a badass you are. And (laughs) we know that we probably wouldn't have made it with Uh. some of the challenges that you went through and you still have this amazing sense of humor about it. And you're just fabulous. And, just a profoundly gifted songwriter and it's something oh, to aspire wow. to. So ah. age, if anything, is an accomplishment, in my opinion. I'll finish with what you find to be the biggest advantage of being a woman in this industry. What is that? <laughs> that is a great question. I've never thought about that, but... um. My goodness, Maggie, why would you give me such a tough thing? Yeah, we've (laughs) talked about the whole show about the disadvantages of being a woman. I think maybe we get an opportunity to show how strong women are, how resilient we are. We've stood tests that guys don't ever get tested on. And we're winning, you know, and I also think that as a woman, I'm proud that we can do things that men can't do besides giving birth. That's probably the biggest one, though. (laughs) (laughs) Jeannie, I love you. Cheers. I love you, too. Well, that's a wrap. You can keep up with Jeannie on her socials at Seely Official. Make sure to give her new record, an American classic, a listen, add it to your collection, and don't miss her wildly entertaining show, Sundays with Seely, on Willie's Roadhouse on Sirius XM every Sunday, of course. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. All of my tour dates are available at MaggieRoseMusic.com. And if you would like exclusive Salute the Songbird content, live stream content, and more, follow me on With the Band. I've been having so much fun seeing you all out there on the road on the Have a Seat tour promoting my brand new record, Have a Seat. So please come out and safely see us. We'd love for you to join us. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Salute the Songbird is brought to you by Osiris Media. Hosted by Maggie Rose. Produced by Austin Marshall, Maggie Rose, Kirsten Cluthy, and Brad Stratton. Editing by Justin Thomas at Revoice Media. Music by Maggie Rose. Show logo by Premier Music Group. Graphics by Catherine Boyles. Thanks for listening, and to close out the show, here's Jeannie Seeley and Willie Nelson singing Not a Dry Eye in the House from her album, An American Classic.